Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 47, Mers Argon, an interview with Randy Golke of MersArgon.com. It's time to start the new battle we're going to cover, which will be the American-led Mers Argon Offensive of 1918. We're going to begin with an interview with Mr. Randy Golke, a fellow World War I enthusiast, researcher, website master, and battlefield tour guide. Mr. Golke runs the website www.mersargon.com, which contains a wealth of information regarding the 47-day battle that defined American involvement in the Great War. The website contains several features, such as bibliographies, articles, research statistics, travel tips, and a feature called People of the Mers Argon, where individuals who study, write about, or live in the Mers Argon region give a quick biography of themselves. There is also a MersArgon.com Facebook page, which connects you with hundreds of like-minded and incredibly helpful folks who readily share information, photos, and travel tips. As for Mr. Golke's background, well, I will let him tell us his story himself. So, as with the other interviews we've had the opportunity to do here on the BFWWP, I hope you enjoy this one as well. Let's see. All right, yeah, so we are recording. So I am here uh, with Mr. Uh, Randy Golke of MersArgon.com. Um, and he is here on the Battles of the First World War podcast. And we are going to kick off the new battle that we're covering here on the podcast, which will be the Mers Argon uh, Offensive of 1918. Uh, Mr. Galke, welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we'll just go down the list of questions that I sent you. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on. Um, and um, I think we'll just, we'll just kick it off. So... So number one, um, what do you do and how and when did you become interested in World War One? Well, maybe it should be what did I do? Um, oh, <laughs> you know, until March 2017, in real life, I was a high yield bond analyst working in Manhattan. Oh, wow. I quit my day job in March to live and work in France for six months as a freelance tour guide on the American battlefields. So from May of 17 to November of 2017, I was over in France doing that. I'm going to do it again for two months this year, um, starting September 17th. And uh, I'm not sure what comes after 2018, after November of 2018. Then I've got to get a real job and go back to real life. (laughs) With regards to how this all started, uh, in 1980, I purchased a World War I aviation game called Fight in the Skies. that was published by TSR Hobbies. Okay. 1986, um, I was studying in Germany um, at the University of Hamburg as a Fulbright Scholar, and I took my first battlefield tour. Mm-hmm. And in 1994, I really began to focus on the Mers Argon. I participated in a work weekend with a German group called the German Remembrance Committee of the Argonne Forest. Argonne Forest. And um, that was quite a neat work weekend, and it really showed me that there's a lot to be seen in the Argonne Forest and in that immediate area. Yes, there That's is. That's how I got into World War One. Oh wow, wow! And and then um, 
so you, you kind of led right into the second question, like the, the Murs Aragon. Um, uh, I just came from there. Like I spent uh, five days out there and, right. and only saw about three out of the five things on, on average of what I wanted to see. There's just so much in that area. And, um, and I kind of look over to, to Champagne as well, like where the French fourth army was operating. Like I, I kind of see that as part of the same battle. Um, so we didn't see anything over there. Um, but it's, there's just, yeah, there is, I can definitely see something about that area. It's, it's, and I guess I'll, I'll do these in reverse orders from what I had, was going to say. And the, the first side is practically, there's a lot of remains of the battles to be explored in the Mers Argonne area. And part of, that reason, part of the reason for that is in the 1920s and 1930s, the French government decided to forest large parts of the previous uh, Verdun battlefields in order yep. to try to help nature um, help the healing process because that land was just so poisonous. There were so many shells, et cetera. So mm-hmm. what we have is a lot more forest in that area than maybe, let's say, on the Somme up north or in Ypres. Um, yes. So practically, there's a lot to see. Um, you know, I also focus on the Meuse-Argonne because intellectually it's the biggest German-American battle of the war, the biggest American offensive, I think, ever, at least according to um, – um, Shoot, I'm just trying to blink his name. Doug Mastriano. And yep, yep. Emotionally, I, I really, I got bit by the bug and just fell in love with the, the Lorraine. That area, like you say, is just a beautiful area of France. So those are the three reasons, really, why I focus on the Meuse Argonne and why I've, since 1994, most of my battlefield trips have been just to the Meuse Argonne area. Oh wow, wow! I'm still, um, still learning. Um, a lot about the offensive. It, it's um, this is this is going to kind of be like covering the Somme. There's this isn't like a set piece battle. Like uh, I, I keep referring to, um, I, I always think of Gettysburg. You know, you have the first day's engagement, the second, then you have the height with Pickett's Charge, and and then it's all over. Um, the 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 Somme, Verdun, and and the the Meuse Argonne. To to me, right now, and and I'm open to being corrected. It seems like it's just like it's a slog and um the Mers argon is a 47 day slog but it, it like there's just so much to cover like i i had it in my mind to see a few villages um like aprimont exermont um romagna but other villages like saint juvent and grand pre like i never even thought of going to see those villages i didn't even like realize up until last week <laughs> that they were part of the battlefield too so i there's a, there's a big learning curve for me, I, but I think a lot of Americans go over thinking that we're going to do a Eurail tour. We're going to see the battlefields for a day or two, and then we're going to drive on and go to the next thing or go up. Then we'll drive on to Bastogne and we'll go to the World War II battlefields up in the bulge. And yep. unfortunately, I think, you know, people sell it short, so to speak, um, trying to do it that way. I, having been over there, the, to me, the more you get in depth, the more you get out into the field, the more you see things, the the more fascinated you become with it. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, yeah, just the area. One area that comes to mind is there's a little village. I think it's to the southeast of Verdun. It's called Dombal on, on Argonne. And there's a, there's a French cemetery on the hillside there. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we visited that on the, in an afternoon. And there was just a, 
certain light hitting the fields and um yeah it's it's like wow like it, this area is there's so much to see and there's it's so amazingly beautiful so to, to any listeners out there if you have not been to the Mirzargon, you definitely have to get yourselves out there and and get out into the countryside and and see things I, I agree. so this this is a big question um what do you you personally think of the American effort in World War One? I? I think we tipped the scale in favor of the Allies. Um, mm-hmm. The United States did not win the war single handedly, but we did certainly we we tipped the scale in front um, towards the side of the Allies. But I think um, and we still had to do quite a bit of fighting, as you say. The Meuse Argonne was a forty seven day battle. Um, yeah. The Germans, even though they exhausted themselves in the spring 1918 offensives, and those were five different assaults that they launched, they still weren't ready to totally give up, and they still fought a very strong um, rearguard action as they were retreating. So mm-hmm. it took quite a bit of slogging for us to, to get through that. And unfortunately, I believe the common doughboy did bear the brunt of American unpreparedness during the war. Um, if you when you start to look at the casualties that the Germans had versus what the Americans had, which is something I'm kind of working on now, mm-hmm. and suffered much greater casualties, and that was basically because most of our units were green, or a great number of our units were green. We didn't know how to assault machine gun positions. We didn't know we didn't use gas as much as the Germans. We didn't use um, artillery to support our offensives, etc. There was quite a learning curve we had to get up, and so. For the average doughboy, it was a disaster in that sense. Um, the other thing that I guess I would say, which kind of fits into this, while I say we didn't win the war, I also get a little offensive or take a little bit of offense with um, what I would call subtle efforts to minimize the role of the Americans. And mm-hmm. I was looking, for instance, um, there's a Wikipedia site that talks about the 100 Days Offensive. And mm-hmm. they call it this way. They say it's on the website. The Hundred Days Offensive was the final period of the First World War, during which the Allies launched a series of offensives against the Central Powers on the Western Front from 8th August to 11 November, beginning with the Battle of Amiens. And that okay. was obviously around 8th of uh, August. Yep. OSHA's counterattack, I mean, the last German offensive in the German Spring Offensives began on the 15th of July. And on the 18th of July, Foch already ordered a counterattack in the Marne, and that involved numerous French divisions, the American 1st, 2nd, 4th, 3rd, and 26th divisions, mm-hmm. and certain British and Italian divisions. So I would argue that instead of saying the last 100 days, which is a nice clean title, it yeah. should really be the last 116 days of the war. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's just me. Another thing that um, Americans don't really, or or... Americans, French, and British don't really understand is that beginning in mid-August 1918, the United States, the American Expeditionary Forces, held as large a percentage of the Western Front as the UK and its Commonwealth. Um, Only France held a larger percentage of the Western Front with roughly 50%, and we were both around 25%. So, and that's one of the, um, I have a page, AEF 1918 Buildup Statistics, in the recent okay. tools of my website. But that's something that people don't really realize. Um, when they look at the American involvement, it's not just the Meuse-Argonne. 
it's how large a portion of the Western Front did we hold, which enabled troops of other nations to be used elsewhere. So that's why I say I, I get a little bit, I take a little offense at uh, efforts to kind of minimize the U.S. involvement. Yeah, my my understanding is that um, out out there the the consensus has been like, well, you know, the, the Americans certainly did not come and win it single handedly. Which, okay, yeah, that's reasonable. But I guess like now um, there's like a more nuanced view coming out where where European historians are are looking at us and saying, yeah, the, you know, the the Americans they did help a lot. Like they, they definitely, as you said, like they, they tip the scales. Right. And, um, I think, I think definitely that was the case. Like, I mean, I think, uh, Ludendorff recognized it. Um, and I think, uh, I think Foch probably recognized it too. Although, um, I love reading how he and Pershing just absolutely detested each other. Um, <laughs> but it heads a few times. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, and at one point, Pershing was about to physically take care of the situation, apparently. But <laughs> I've only I've seen that in a couple of sources, but nothing from Foch's side on that. Right. But uh, um, yeah, but like we, I definitely feel that we we did help. Although, um, oh my God, what what an expensive effort on our part of of so many casualties. I did not realize that that our divisions like were just mauled to the to the point that they were like d- during the Mers Aragon like um the 35th division like just disintegrated uh the so many others like like combat ineffective and these were massive organizations of 20 25 27,000 men and like that's being rendered combat ineffective and, through and a big portion a big reason I should say of, of that was just that they were they were so green. When you take a look, I don't have that off the top of my head, but when you take a look at the first nine divisions that were involved in the, that were in the line on September 26th, mm-hmm. um, five, I believe, were totally green. And had not mm-hmm. had not seen any significant combat before that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And um I'm also I'm, I'm finishing up um, Ed Langle's book uh, to conquer hell, and um, I you know I've, I've got uh, Douglas Mastriano's book as well on the shelf, and I'm going to start digging into that next. But <laughs> it's um it's just a, like I'm having a hard time like reconciling how our side apparently like the the AEF was was not into using artillery and machine guns like that whole uh, offensive, uh, uh, right. idea. So, and, I, I, and part of it, I mean, part of it is Pershing and his, you know, the, the open warfare doctrine. Part of it is also, um, especially in the initial days, those roads were so jammed up and, and you were driven over there. There aren't that many roads. It, yeah. Uh, having nine divisions in line. And if the average strength of a division at that time was 25,000, that's 225,000 men over a 20 mile period or 20 mile area east to west. And that doesn't include the tank crews, the special engineer crews, the uh, aircraft, um, you know, the, the aviation uh, squadrons, et cetera, that you would get. Yep. 
So it's just mind blowing numbers, how many people were in that area and what the demand on those roads were. And they were in bad shape already. So (laughs) part of it, um, you know, um, Gene Facts with their bare hands does a good job of pointing this out. The artillery a lot of times could not advance to, once the infantry had advanced too far, your field artillery couldn't get up there because the roads were in such bad shape. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Those, the, um, so for listeners who haven't, who have not been to the Meuse Argonne, the, the roads, um, are incredibly narrow. Um, think of a two lane road, cut that in half. And that is a French two lane road, um, that you will find in between villages. Um, so it's French drivers are also, um, aggressive. They know their roads really well. Uh, so even if you don't, they're not particularly concerned with what you're doing. So they'll, so we, we, we ran off to the side of the road many times as like (laughs) many French drivers on these, uh, on these four lane highways, uh, as, as you said in a comment, um, just, just came barreling towards you. Like they're, they're fearless. So I, I can imagine trying to run thousands of troops through that through tiny roads like that. Now, be, before you scare anyone from going to France because of that <laughs> perspective, um, we I joked with one client last year that we saw about five cars, one right after the other, and we joked that that's a traffic jam. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. So one awesome thing about about this region, too, is uh, – and, and I, thanks for bringing that up. Like, I, I hope I don't scare anyone off um, – so when you do see a car, like they, the locals know their roads and they, they know how to maneuver them and how to maneuver around other drivers. Um, but th- there are very few drivers on those roads. In fact, two years ago, um, February of 2016, I was there with my stepson and on a Sunday afternoon, it was, it was raining. We drove around an entire afternoon without seeing another car on the road for like hours like the whole, the whole area was everybody was at home and uh so so yeah it's very sparsely populated too so so no no fears um but you know that that kind of leads me to to the next thing is like how how is how's that how is world war 1 perceived in the area today and and how how do the french nationals view americans and their efforts through that region so at the local level, there's a lot of interest in preserving the history that happened in their towns and, and surrounding area. Um, so there's more than enough interest in that, um, maybe a little bit more at the, or somewhat at the regional level too. But from what I've seen, the biggest interest in, from France or from the French is more so at the local level. Um, most of them are very grateful to the U.S. for, for the involvement in World War I and World War II. Mm-hmm. What I would say as a whole, and remember, I studied in Germany for a year or two, um, so I've spent a fair amount of time over in Europe. I've never had a negative experience with a European expression, expressing anger towards me as an American. What I would say is that the, Ameri- the Europeans are very good at distinguishing between people and politics. So while they don't always agree with the politics of a country like the U.S., mm-hmm. um, they, don't, you know, they don't portray that on the people. Um, where I, I think the opposite is a little bit true here. I don't know if you remember back in uh, the days of Desert Storm when the French would not let Americans fly over France 
American aircraft fly over France to do the uh, bombings. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a big backlash here, and French fries were renamed Freedom Fries, etc. Oh, yes. Yep. I remember all that. Yep. So I have always felt that the, the locals um, are very interested in the battles, interested in the war. Um, they're very supportive of Americans coming over and traveling. They might not be able to communicate because of the language, but they, mm -hmm. they nevertheless are not hostile at all. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, in that sense, it's a it's a neat place to to go from. I've, I've never felt unwelcome. No, I have to say um, that I, I totally support that. Um, everyone there is um, very friendly um, and they and if you show an interest in in the local history, like um, people are, are so happy to, to take you out on a walk to yep. show you things that you otherwise might not see. So, even, even yeah, no, it's a big language barrier. They'll, they'll still they'll still come out and show you around and, you know, you can maybe understand a, a 10th or 20th of what they're saying, but they'll still show you something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. No, we, we had similar experiences and, and um, we're very, very grateful for them too. Like it, we saw many things that we, we otherwise might, might not get a chance to see if, if we just stuck to like the main kind of tourist points. Yeah. Um, so you, with your interest in the Murs Argonne, you, you run a website, the, MersArgon.com, right. um, which you also have a Facebook page. Um, so, what what is your goal with with your website? So, it's a combination blog post slash website, and I don't do as much deep research on the battle as I probably should, but there's limited time for everything. But what I try to do is I provide information to encourage and assist Americans to visit the battlefield mm -hmm. and study the war that battle. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, for instance, on the blog post side, I'll do four blog posts a month on average, probably. And categories of the blog posts include people of the Mirrors Argonne, where I introduce them to people, um, both Americans and Europeans that are active over there. Um, then and now photo studies. Um, I have a news and events section. I have a Le Vie en France, which covers cultural topics, um, such as getting used to driving roundabouts, um, finding places for women to pee. Sorry to use that language, <laughs> but uh, out in the countryside in France, that's a difficult challenge. Um, yeah, yes, it is. And then the, uh, the website portion of the, of the MoosArgon.com um, has articles, useful links, some statistical data, like I mentioned, the, uh, the 1918 buildup statistics. I take a look at American casualties, by division. Um, it's got travel tips, etc. And the most amazing thing, I right now I only have 93 subscribers to the blog post, and I thought that would have been much bigger. But on the Facebook group, I'm up to almost 1,200 active members. And there's a lot of discussion that goes on in the newsargon.com Facebook group. I don't think there's um, a day or two goes by without me popping in to see what what people have posted there and, and I get all the notifications. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much information being shared and um, in, in prepping my own trip to France, I, I posted a few times on there and asked a couple of questions and the, the, the responses I got um, led me directly to the lost battalion site. Um, but also like just, it was so cool. And, and even I, I asked, you, I think, where the spot where the last um, doughboy was killed, um, mm -hmm. 
and and you came back with with maps and and GPS coordinates, which which was awesome. So yeah, it, the, the exchange of information has been great. And I, if you had asked me when I I restarted the website in 2014 because I had had one years ago, and I restarted mm-hmm. and I started the Facebook group in early 2015. And if you had asked me that Facebook group was going to turn out to be that popular, I would have said no. I, I would never <laughs> have believed it. Well, it's it's great work and congratulations and I and I hope it I hope it continues to grow. That's um, it's it's, it's a really great place to to meet and uh, meet other enthusiasts and and again like exchange information and just share that that passion. Like you get a lot of people posting um, pictures of relatives uh, who 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 died over there or who served in the region, and it's 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 so awesome to see. Um, to see these worldwide experiences like this world war being turned into like a very personal experience through, through someone's great uncle. So it's it really like helps bring it alive. And, and with Facebook and with the Merzargon page, um, you, you get to make those connections. So you get to see this happening. So it's, it's really, really awesome. Um, well, thank you. So if, if you were to do a podcast on, the Merz-Argonne Offensive, what events would you definitely cover? What would you say, hey, if you're going to, if I'm to do this, these events need to be talked about? How much time do you have? No. <laughs> I've got all sorts of time. I put together several. Uh, awesome. <laughs> Mont Facon and, you know, on day one, day two by the 79th Division. Um, mm-hmm. The 77th in the Argonne Forest with, um, especially focusing on the Lost Battalion. Yes. Um, I really like the fighting around Le Chintendu, just southwest of Apremo by the 28th Division. I find that to be very fascinating and a very neat walk area, too, if you if you know. Oh, okay. Um, the disintegration of the 35th Division by Exermont, um, mm-hmm. the Germans' 1st Division, or as, as the Germans um, counterattack there, and then they're replaced by the 1st Division. The Sergeant York site... Um, obviously yeah. the 82nd division, the breaking of the Hindenburg line by Roman and Kunel really fascinated okay. with that area. Um, fighting the fighting at Grand Prix in Saint-Juvent by the 77th and 78th divisions. Um, okay. Cote de Chatillon by the 42nd division. MacArthur. Yep. East of the Murs, I would say Moville farm and the area where the 29th division was. Um, although the 33rd division too, up there, there's some fascinating things to be seen up there too. Um, you'd have to focus on the Meuse River crossings. Um, Henry Gunther, of course, oh. the last American to die right before the armistice. Uh, when it was there. Yep. I'd throw in some aviation. Um, the ones that come to mind easily are Frank Luke and Lieutenants Gertler and Bleckley. Maybe a few, others, okay. um, a few other aviators. Then, um, you have to, I, I would do near the end, something about the commemoration efforts and attempts to bury the dead. And of course, a lot of that was done by African-American labor units. But mm-hmm. quite a story, the building of the cemetery and the decision of the government to allow the next of kin to have the choice of keeping the bodies there or having it sent back to the U.S. So there's a, there's a whole story to be told there. Um I didn't mention the 92nd and 93rd divisions that were the two African-American divisions only because 
was mm-hmm. technically they weren't assigned to American units. They were assigned to French units. Right. I think those would be probably my, that's my biggest list. And unfortunately, you know, the ideal thing would be able to tell something about each division and, and focus on that. But that's very difficult. Yeah. I've, um, I'm still in the process of like putting my, my episodes together, but, um, so it's good. It's good to see that I'm, uh, you and I are pretty much online. I, I, um, I, I had neglected, um, aviation. Um, so I will definitely pick up on that, but, uh, but also I've been reading too about, um, the story of, of the, the American battle monuments commission or trying to find out the story. And I, I'm, I have to say, like, I've, I've found that fascinating as well. Of, of Like, how did all of this happen? Like, how did, how do we get these cemeteries? And, and having just visited um, the Mers Argonne Cemetery, it's just, it's such a beautiful place. Um, so it's, it's like a, such a garden of peace now. And um, Lisa, yeah, just, I would like to know more about it. Lisa so. Boudreaux has written a book on the, um, on the, I, I forget the name of it now, um, but it's worth looking at, B-U-D-R-E-A-U, I think is her last name, spelling. Okay. Um, but it's on the politics and, and policies of remembrance that came out after World War I. And, and she studied that. So that, and that certainly includes the formation of the cemeteries and the whole burial slash reburial. I mean, some of these guys were buried and reburied a few times, um, you know, from where they were, provisionally buried on the battlefield mm-hmm. on, then moved in the place there. And then the family decides they want a person taken back overseas or back to the U S. So we, you know, at, at a minimum, probably dug up two times. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Wow. What a, what a, what a hard time um, those, those post-war years must've been, especially in that, in that region. Um, yeah. Not um, to mention that the, in that region with the French, I mean, the total devastation and how do you go back to making agricultural land be safe to be, to be, um, you know, uh, harvested. Yes. And, that, and that's hundreds of deaths from Yep. tractors, you know, in those, especially in that first decade or two after the war, I mean, because as you know, farmers are still plowing up shells today. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, yes. We, we, um, a, a friend, uh, he, he texted me a, a picture while we were over there and, and, uh, he was walking by a field and, and it had just rained and, and, uh, he said, Oh, look, look what just came up. And it was a huge shell, like kind of like the size of a man's forearm. Just, just laying out on top of the dirt, like, so I, I couldn't imagine finding that stuff all, all the time, um, and just dealing with it. Here's, um, um, I, I just found the book in my collection, Mike. It's Bodies of War, World War One, Bodies and of- the Politics of Commemoration in America, nineteen nineteen to nineteen thirty three. Oh, perfect! Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely going- worth worth a read. It's it's a part of the history that know that few people realize. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's going on the list. Excellent. Um, to the, to the brand new visitor to, uh, to the Mers Argonne region, um, say maybe they have 
limited time, maybe a day or two, maybe maybe two or three days. Yeah. What what would you consider must see spots? Okay. Well, you just got my list. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to cheat and use that as part of it. The other sure sure. <laughs> the other two is the Mirs Argonne American Memorial at Montfaucon, and mm-hmm. I prefer to see it at night. I love driving up there when it's dark um, because at least during the summer months, it's lit up and very evocative when you, when you see it at night and you walk Montfaucon at night. Um, and then you've got the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery at Ramon. And if you go, a tip on that is if you go late in the afternoon, generally around five o'clock, they have a flag lowering ceremony and they will let, they will let, um, visitors participate in that and lower the flag. My father was able to do that this last year when he came over to visit me. So those can be oh, two moving cool. things. Um, and they are the American official memorial and the official American cemetery for the battlefields. But really my philosophy is, and we've talked about this a lot on this, getting away from visiting museums and markers and getting out into the field. And the way mm-hmm. you do that is you pick a person, you pick a unit, um, your regiment, division, whatever, you get the appropriate biographies, unit histories, maps, and photos that you can, and there are strategies for getting those, and I, I can certainly mm-hmm. help with that. And you combine them with a, a modern-day French IGN 1 to 25,000 scale map, and you go out and you walk the battlefields. And I think there's no better way to get an appreciation for the Meuse-Argonne fighting and to actually get out there and walk the battlefields and line up, take some pictures. One of the blog posts, or one of the sec- categories on my blog post is then and now, and it, that's very popular. Mm-hmm. Go find some good then and now pictures and, or find, yeah, take the then pictures and go out and find the now pictures. It's amazing what you can see. So really, I, I don't want to just list other than I mentioned that the major actions that I think were key actions in the battle. But I think getting out into the field and seeing something like that, I mean, it's just walking, you know, going along the Côte de Châtillon on the south side, it's, I believe it's Moussard Farm, and you get into the, you get into the little woods that's right there, and you get into the German Hindenburg line, there are beautifully preserved trench lines right there. Wow. Wow. But if you don't... We we got to... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you don't know that, or if you don't go out into the field, you maybe don't see that. Yeah. Um, thanks to uh, Robert Laplander, we we got directions um, to the Lost Battalion mm-hmm. site, and um, like we, I had never experienced anything like that before. That kind of steep ground where it was physically hard to stand up straight, and um, because of the just because of the slope, but then um, to to see the the foxholes and to 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 be right there, like right where it all happened, like that's definitely a very very moving experience that you, you can't get that from just stopping at the roadside marker and looking down the hill, right. you know? So. And, and those foxholes aren't super deep. They're not, you know, they're not five feet deep anymore. Most of them, you know, they're, they're kind of shallow indentations in the ground. But when you, when you're on that hillside and you look around and you see all these little narrow, shallow indentations, you know that that's where the men were. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, awesome. Well, that's, that's excellent advice. And you're, you're heading over to France, um, here shortly. Yes. And are you, yeah. you, you were talking about 
um, being a tour guide, are you still offering tours or are you booked through right now? I am going to be there from 17 September to 17 November. Um, and I still have some time slots available, um, more towards the end of them, end of that period when the weather's quite okay. as nice. And, and that's obviously why, cause I, I'm pretty full in the first month. Um, mm-hmm. on the, uh, on my website, museargon.com, there's an MA tours and travel tab, and you can take a look for things that I am offering. Um, both a, a couple of small group tours, one with Rob Laplander and one with a uh, German historian, Marcus Clower. And then anyone that wants to hire me as a, on a one-on-one basis to take them to where their relative fought, et cetera, I can do that as well. Oh, that's great. That's great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, that is, um, those, those are the questions that I had. And, um, thank you so, so much for, for coming on. Um, I really thank you for taking the time out of your day. Um, and also to, to share your information, um, I will be, um, once this episode is posted, I will be providing links for, um, for your website and, and, and the Facebook page as well. Um, so yeah, th- thank you, Mr. Galky. Thank you so much for yeah, coming great. on. Thank you. I have certainly had fun. The, the, the other thing that I would say is anyone mm-hmm. that wants to, has a passion and is looking to pursue their interest, World War One or not, go for it. Um, you know, I, I certainly have had a great time last year, and I'm looking forward to two good months this year over in France. The reason it's only two months this year is my wife didn't want me to go for that long. Uh, six months is quite a long time. But, um, you know, pursue your passion and, and go for it and see where it takes you. I Last year, I met so many people, Europeans mostly, but Americans also met so many people, and, and it was just a real growth experience um, that has helped me now get to know the battlefields even better than I knew them before. Ah, that's awesome. No, you're, you're absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, me having done this, this podcast is, is a great example of what you just said. Uh, um, well, here, here I am speaking with you right, right now, which would be, you know, that, that wouldn't happen any other way, but also like just being able to, to speak with, um, regular people who, who share this passion, but also like th- through, you know, Facebook and social media, like you can actually meet and communicate with Robert Laplander or Ed, Ed Langel, you know, like you can actually talk to these guys and, and they are as passionate as you are. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely take, take heed of, uh, Mr. Galky's words here, like per- pursue that passion. Well, awesome. Um, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and um, and sign off. And if you would just stay online for just a little bit longer, yep, um, cool. All right, all right, folks. Well, there you go. This is the beginning of the Mers Argon offensive. The next episode will be the we'll be getting right into the narrative. All right, so take care and talk to you soon. All right, folks. So hope you enjoyed that discussion with Mr. Galky. Uh, links to the Mers Argon website and uh, its Facebook page will be posted in the episode notes, as well as on Facebook and Twitter and the website. Um, final thing, please heed Mr. Galky's advice at the end of the interview. Seriously, follow your passion. You'll be amazed at the results and at what happens. And at the very least, you'll be doing something you enjoy, even if it is just 
as a hobby. All right, next episode, like we said, we're going to go ahead and start the narrative by laying out the background for the Murs Argon. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at www1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, which I am using a lot more these days, or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you, as always, for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.